The second half is actually called An Evening of Operetta with Alexandreu. I don't actually need you guys unless you can do harmonies. Sorry, no, no. You have suffered enough. Um, So let's have another game to kick off this section. It's called They Said What? From Marcus Fish to Christopher Chope and Bill Cash, the House of Commons is full of prize fools saying the wrong thing and saying it at length. The game is simply to match the wrong thing to the prize fool. Some in the audience may know the answers, but no shouting out. Right. Which MP was found to have lied under oath in a dispute over a potato business, evicted from his... One and a half million home, ordered to pay 800,000, then said, in actuality, I won the case. (laughs) Is it Marcus Fish, Mark Francois, Michael Fabricant, or Andrew Bridgen? Andrew Bridgen. Did you all know that? There's no false ones here. So you you don't need to treat them with suspicion. They're all true. Which MP said... COVID was a bioweapon whose existence was hidden by security services. Joe Morrissey, Mark Francois, Andrew Bridgen, or Desmond Swing? Is it just Andrew Bridgen again? Is that your, is that your I mean, pun? I guess so. Okay. Any advances on Andrew Bridgen? Maybe Desmond Swain. I'm, th- I'm going to go with Desmond Sween uh, as well. It's Andrew Britton. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be all Andrew Britton, isn't Which it? MP called... <laughs> <laughs> Which MP called 15-minute cities designed to bring things closer so we waste less of our time and don't pollute as much an international socialist concept saying they were tantamount to taking away our personal freedoms. Is it Dominic Raab, Nadine Dorries, Nick Fletcher, or Andrew Bridgen? (laughs) (laughs) Who wants to go? I'm going to go with Nick Fletcher. Yeah, I think... I I don't think even Mad Nad would say... I don't know. She doesn't understand it. She wouldn't understand it. Ian? What are you... I don't think it was Bridgen. I think it... Yeah, let's go with Fletcher. It was Fletcher. (laughs) Trick question, you see. Which MP said that the BBC suffers from nepotism in 2021 and later went on to hire their own daughter? (laughs) Was it Nadine Dorries, Andrea Jenkins, Andrea Leadsom, or Andrew Bridgen? It was Nadine Dorries, wasn't it? It was. Which MP was caught watching porn in the chamber and then claimed he was looking for tractors? Now, can we try this without me giving you the, uh, the alternatives, just to see if you remember the name? I do. Forever etched in my mind, Neil Parrish. Very good. That marked you. Right. Can I just say, the other thing that was amazing about the Neil Parrish stuff, that his, his wife tried to mount, like... Quite a re- like quite a spirited defence of him, and the best she could do is she's like, "Well, he wasn't doing it in the middle of the chamber. <laughs> it was just in a corner, and actually, it was side. the other people's fault for spying on a bunch of creepy perverts." 
I, I think that's fair. <laughs> Mary, you know, we have a sperm deficit, as you know. <laughs> Someone needs to produce it. Mary Black was the first MP to drop the C-bomb in the House of Commons. But she wasn't the first to have spoken on the record in Parliament. That honour falls to a peer who said it months earlier. Why am I the only person you're fucking making eye contact with? Because you might know this. You might know this as like the sweary guy. So was it... I've written several books. Was it Baroness Jenkin, Lord Botham, Lord Frost or Lord Bridgen? I'm going to go with Jenkin. Lord Botham. I mean, he's bound to have yeah, face very sweary. Very, very sweary. Beefy. I, yeah. I think it's you're, beefy. You're going for both. It was Jenkin. No? Oh. She was giving an, an example of the sort of abuse people get online oh. and, and read it out. I'm just saying, look, you put the word cunt and the House of Lords in one thing, and that's my whole area right there. <laughs> I fucking, like... Love it. Yeah. What, what yeah. happens if you, you say... You had to get that one. What, what happens if you say this word in the House of Lords? I mean, do you... Do you this word. You know, I I'm not like him. I don't need to say that word. I don't know. Um, does, I mean, doesn't the speaker there, throw her There's out, probably like a special guard in stockings that mm. comes and knocks you on the head with an ancient stick. You probably, you probably get thrown on the wall sack and then beaten. <laughs> the Lord's spiritual go up in flames. That's what happens. Right, let's move on to our... Um, final subject. So we've all just returned from a weekend of full-body seaweed wraps and mud facials and cucumber sandwiches at the secret Ditchley Park Ramona Summit. (laughs) We talked about how David Frost smells of poo and will never be allowed in our treehouse and we did trust exercises. The, The moment David Lammy fell backward into Michael Goh's arms was a touching breakthrough. And, and, of course, we talked about our super-secret plan to secretly rejoin the EU in secret, <laughs> as reported by all the newspapers. <laughs> Ian, that meeting involved all kinds of characters from the Brexit years and before. Theresa May's negotiator, Ollie Robbins, was there. Your favourite, Gisela Stewart, was there. <laughs> Friend of the podcast, David Lammy. Enemy of the podcast, Michael Gove. <laughs> and Lord Spiritual of Darkness, Norman Lamont, <laughs> Michael Howard and Peter Mandelson was there. Is even the fact of such a convention happening a huge leap forward, actually? It's really interesting. It's really interesting because it does suggest that among the ones that are still capable of sustained cognitive thought... <laughs> the handful. The handful. <laughs> You, you, you. I said I run a tight ship. Who was that? <laughs> Sorry, and go ahead. No, no, something is happening. They're they're starting to recognise the kind of situation that they're in. But I think it's too late to save themselves. Certainly in the Tory Party, and we'll see it. We'll see it when you know Richard Sunak brings back some kind of deal on the Northern Ireland Protocol. Where they're all like, well, I mean, whatever deal you bring back, fine, but it can't have the European Court of Justice in it. And you're like. It fucking will, mate, because that's the court that decides what the law is in Europe. I mean, there's not, there's not going to be any kind of deal that you're going to come back with that doesn't involve that in some way. Of course, it'll be fudge and it'll be at the end of some process, but it'll fucking be there. And then they'll throw their toys out of the pram. 
And once you're in that headspace, they kind of know that it's not popular anymore. They know they're not really accomplishing anything. But they are really lost in a very, very special land, you know, where, where they are trying to make themselves feel better by imposing their sense of objective reality on the world rather than recognizing it in their own mind. On that basis, I think the majority of the party are not going to be able to go down that road. Someone like Michael Gove, 100% can go down that road because he was never religious with it. You know what I mean? He was never had that sort of fervor, that millennialist approach towards it. So it's interesting that it's happening. It's not going to save them. Mm. Um, on the 28th of January, uh, Daniel Hannan wrote in The Telegraph, and I quote, the, the evidence is undeniable. It can't really... be like a pantomime up here. <laughs> This has descended into chaos. <laughs> so, Daniel Hannan wrote in the Telegraph, and I quote, the evidence is undeniable there really is a Remainer plan to rejoin the EU by stealth. He was contradicted two weeks later by Dan Hannan, who wrote, who wrote in The Sun, and I quote, the headlines are wrong, there is no plot to rejoin the EU. We are at a threshold, I feel, Ian, where one thing that Daniel Hannan has said actually has to be right. <laughs> Which is it? Do you, do you love, by the way, how he's Daniel Hannan in The Telegraph, but Dan Hannan in The Sun? No way! Genuinely, genuinely. Oh, wow. Yeah. Dan Hannan. Man the, of the people. The man who starts your morning right. <laughs> So, so is there a plot or isn't there a plot? I mean, to be fair to him, there kind of is and there kind of isn't, right? Like, I mean, <laughs> like if, if, if we're completely honest about how we behave, you know, we'll have these conversations and, you know, Labour, let's say Labour gets into power at the next election and then we'll be like, oh no, you know, everyone understands, can't join the, re, you know, can't stand that debate again. She's going to have to do a better trade deal and then we're going to have closer things and every second that that is taking place at the back of our minds will be like, we're fucking getting in, mate, and you know it's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're, we're You're patient. not meant to say the quiet thing. No, we can't that. say it, right? Every time we talk about it, it's like, well, you can't talk about rejoin, but ultimately, what's what we're going to fucking do? Like, like, it's like a Labour government. <laughs> can't you, say it. We, 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 we kind of all, I think, get a sense of the structure of how this is going to proceed, which is we try to maximise whatever the deal is that Labour comes up with when it gets in, whether that's we can achieve something like single market customs union or whether it's something more removed than that. But most of us know... Keir Summer is not going to get in on day one and be like, fool to you, you fuckers! It's EU membership all the way! You know, it's just not going to happen. He kind of did that with the Labour leadership. He did, a he did. Bit. <laughs> So, he has gone, who yeah. knows? <laughs> yeah, he does, he does have a record. He sort of went, ah! <laughs> so, he's, so he's not entirely wrong, right? It's like, no, there isn't a formal plot to get in the EU, but they look in our eyes... And when they call us recalcitrant Remainers, it's like, well, I mean, that is a fair criticism. <laughs> well, can I just add to one thing to that? And I don't mean to do us all down because we're all very good people. We're not actually that good at plotting. Like, if you just... Like, kind of look what happened at the actual referendum campaign. Like, when when some plotting was actually exactly needed. like, you know, we had all the evidence, we had all the paper, and we're like, oh, we got like, oh, I'll tell you who we should get to lead it. So Stuart Rose, that's what we... So I just don't think we are, like, the ninjas of, like, you know... So I don't think they've got anything massively to sort of 
worry about for the, for the time being. I just don't. But I don't once you've of... got into the paranoid style, which you know we did in a major way, you just can't let go of it. I mean, it's just conspiracy all the way, and uh, you've got to say something's a conspiracy, even when it's bleeding obvious that it's not really a conspiracy. Are you going to go nuts about aliens again? <laughs> <laughs> This is By the way, she was doing it backstage. I swear to God. <laughs> was, fucking that was literally the entire interval. This is precisely not going nuts about aliens. <laughs> this is precisely not indulging in wild conspiracy theory and denouncing the paranoid style as a political tendency and trying to get realist, guys. But, but it does feel like things have shifted dramatically mm. um, in, in the last few months. I mean, Brexit benefits are being more honestly assessed. Journalists are asking questions. The word is being said. Businesses are much more outspoken about the, the difficulties they're having. Is that just a function of time, or have, has other stuff shifted to sort of break the Brexit taboo? It is a function of time, because Brexit is now history. We've done it. It's over. Um, and the thing about history is that you can actually take it apart and have some perspective on it. And even when you've been a part of making it happen in an incredibly cynical and dissimulating way, you might actually be able to step back and consider the consequences of your actions. So it's partly, you know, the referendum is seven years ago now. God, I can't believe how it's <laughs> happened in that time. <laughs> and it's the Brexit. The other thing is Brexit is no longer in the public mind a first order problem. There are more urgent things going on in terms of you know, the direction Britain, direction of Britain is going, and the state of the NHS, and the you know the the perma strikes that we that we now have, and which seem to be becoming increasingly normalised. I have to say, um, and so it all that all feels more urgent than Brexit, and that means that people, I think, some people especially, are a bit less scared of talking about Brexit. Um, people who thought, you know, maybe it wasn't a good idea and it wouldn't help Keir and, uh, you know, or, or, you know, why go against Boris, you know, are actually able to say now mm-hmm. and, be, and be more honest about it. Do you think that's why the European Court of Human Rights has been the target of so many attacks recently? Is, is that a credible threat or is that just the Brexiteers moving, sort of pitching their tent just a little bit further down the road of that carnival. Yeah, I mean, it's like clearly Brexit is an absolute disaster. So, you know, let's, let's move on. Uh, let's, let's try out something else and see if leaving the ECHR solves all our problems. No, I mean, the ECHR, is that, that, that was just, you know, it, it was red meat that Sunak threw to the ERG to the European Research Group, and they more or less admitted as much to keep them happy for a while and keep them chewing that over, uh, because that's, that's what they like to do. And the fact is that I, I think Sunak is in a short term in a stronger position than many people think, because if the ERG were to topple him, that, that the game's up, frankly. You know, if they were to bring back Johnson, uh, we're obviously not going to bring back Truss. I, mean, I, I think that is in the unthinkable league. But um, there's no one else. Uh, and if they were to bring it, it, it's just not sustainable. There would have to be a general election. So what do you do? Do you just grumble a bit audibly, you know, and but not actually make that killer move because you need a bit of time to find a new job, get a TV show? Um, <laughs> that's surely, you know, the preferable option to blowing it all up. Uh, I, I love the idea that, that, that Johnson is somehow going to be the nemesis of the deal that he actually <laughs> negotiated and signed three years ago. It's just nothing. There's nothing but Greek tragedy about Johnson. Uh, I love uh, it. 
Well, I, I, I would argue Aristophanes is more the direction you're going. Um, Aisha, there are reliable whispers that there is about to be movement on the Northern Ireland Protocol, and it will involve the UK caving on European courts retaining their status as arbiter of last resort. I mean, what a huge shock. It's, it's literally the thing we've been saying for three years, that the, the EU ain't going to accept some other person defining the single market. Um, the ERG are furious, apparently, according to the Brexit press, which is surprising. They're usually very sanguine, <laughs> uh, stuff like that. Um, the, the Express is pitching it as a battle between a Remainer cabinet and true believer backbenchers. What is Sunak's strategy here? I don't think he really has a strategy. I mean, he is... He's, it feels like he's really out of his depth uh, at the moment, trying to, you know, keep these coalitions together. I mean, just bringing in Lee Anderson. I mean, for... <laughs> I mean... You, you kind of say, uh, Rose, there could never be another leader of the Tory. Lee Anderson, welcome. Like, I mean, that is how bad it is. I think could. that's actually bizarrely it's, credible. It's totally, I mean, we are in that kind of parallel universe. But somebody was kind of saying to me that, you know, one of the main reasons why Lee Anderson was brought in was to try and get him to kind of calm down about the um, ECHR, basically, where they felt like if he was in the tent with some kind of job, he couldn't kick off about it um, as much. And probably, you know, he is such a big voice now for the sort of, you know, the, the Brexit flag bearers. So, I mean, I think, I think, I feel like Sunak's team, he is inexperienced. His entire team is very inexperienced as well. His, like, political team is very inexperienced. I sort of think, Again, we find ourselves in, in Groundhog Day where you're absolutely right. We will get, we're very, very, and what's interesting is like, and I'm sure you're all speaking to the same people, people will say that behind the scenes, when it's sort of the civil servants and the advisors who have got the blessing of the of sort of sensible Rishi Sunak, they're making really good progress. It feels like things are moving forward. It feels like they're progressing towards a, a deal. It's when they have to go public with it, with the kind of crazies, that is when it's all... And I, I think you, you, you may even see a situation where we get very close to a deal, the ERG kicks off, and then Sunak panics and doesn't quite know well, how to uh, kind of square the, square the circle. So, so on that, exactly a month ago in Belfast, Starmer said, I say to the PM, if there is a deal to do in the coming weeks, do it. If it delivers on a national interest in the people of Northern Ireland, we will support you. He said explicitly they would provide him with the votes and the political cover that he needed. And he said the time to stand up to the ERG is now. Did Starmer anticipate what was inevitable? Or did he actually manage to nudge Sunak in a good direction? I think it was sort of inev inevitable from from what I've heard from, you know, Brussels correspondents who are sort of, you know, no huge fan of, of they haven't got any skin in the game in terms of Sunak. They have said behind the scenes things have been much better. I mean, believe it or not, they did actually say this is the one thing under Liz Truss as well. There was some progress made on this. This is the one th probably quite sort of good thing that happened which wasn't wrecking the economy and hiking up your mortgages there, there was already some quite good groundwork laid behind the scenes when when she was there because of course she was quite open to this because she was a, a remainer back in the day so I think I think Starmer sort of knew that you know this was going to be the 
the sort of landing point, really. And it is just going to be such an interesting test for Sunak. It's going to be such a... You know, if he gets, you know, a deal on the table and then he has to basically blow up his own deal because the ERG are going to come for him. I mean, that is going to be a ridiculous... But is it possible that he, does, I mean, that he doesn't care anymore? That he's, he knows there's defeat coming and no, I, I think he thinks I might, I might as well carve myself no. a, a tiny little legacy by doing the right thing. I, don't, I think he's still quite inexperienced in all this. I don't think he's... You know, this is a big deal for him, right? On many, many levels, on a cultural level, you know, he's the first sort of person of colour to get this. So the, there's a lot of... Ex- he's not ready to give this up. He's not sort of bruised and battered enough. You know, he's... This is the... You know, he sort of can't quite believe he's got mm. got the job. And I think... We he's, can't, I? Yeah. <laughs> I sort of think that he's... There's part of me, right? And look, he wanted the gig. There's part of me that almost feels quite sorry for him because I think he doesn't fully understand like the kind of mendacity that he's up against the combination of the mendacity and the stubbornness and the stupidity and the, the kind of you know absolute sort of steadfast cutting off our nose to spite face you know at, right at the end I would not surprise me if he behind the scenes has been saying quite positive noises about this and then ends up making some ridiculous like speech or something where he completely sort of rose back from it and we're back to back to square one but Another person told me this the other day who spends a lot of time in Brussels, you know, speaking to all the kind of great and the good out there. And he said things that, you know, I was saying to him, that, what do you think about this rejoined stuff and where's the EU on this? And he said, basically, we have become such a nightmare for the EU now. We are like one of those mad, embarrassing exes that you had who basically kind of shat in your laundry cupboard, <laughs> burnt down your house, abducted your cat and now goes, should we give it another go? Should we like... They're a bit like, no. just leave us alone. Leave, just leave, there's a restraining order. Leave me alone. A- any similarities with persons real are <laughs> coincidental. Um, I hear the same from my con- contacts in, in Brussels. They're like, it'll take a long time before we let you back in. Oh, also, and just the other thing on that, this is the other thing I thought was so, so interesting. What someone said to me was that, this is the other thing about the rejoin thing that they're really nervous about. They think that Keir Starmer could become prime minister, but they think British politics is now so febrile he could be in power for one term because there is a whole, believe it or not, there is a plan amongst some sort of sane Tories about how you rebuild the, the Tory party and be a one-term opposition. And their thinking is if, the Keir, if there's any possibility of Keir Starmer being a one-term prime minister and then the Tories coming back, they never think that the Tories will slay the Eurosceptics. And then we'd be, so Keir Starmer could try to get us back in, then the Tories come in, take us back out again, and they're I like, think, no, not I doing it, not doing it. I think that's incredibly likely, yep. and uh, I have seen it in action in Greece, um, uh, where basically the Progressive Party gets in and people have a much shorter patience span with them they like they want to see change now and they they judge you by much harsher standards and within three years the the party that caused the mess is back in power basically Ros, um jonathan haskell he's one of the people on the panel that sets the interest rates for the Bank of England, says Brexit has cost the UK £29 in lost business investment alone. How easy is it to track these hypothetical 
economic could have beens, and, and, and do such technical things that actually matter? Well, I mean, obviously they matter. It's very, it's very hard for economists to tease out what's Brexit, what's COVID, what's the Ukraine. So it's a, it's a really difficult thing. And I was talking to somebody, an economist today, who was saying that, oh, they changed all the methodology as well at the time of Brexit vote. So that's really made, made our calculation super <laughs> difficult. I didn't ask him any more about that because I felt that was all I needed to know. But, but there's no doubt, of course, that we're poorer than we would otherwise be. I mean, quarrel over how much, but that's, that's, uh, that's a given. I think the question is, how do Britons feel about even if you, you, you say, you know, people don't vote on the basis of statistics, and they certainly didn't seem to vote on the basis of warnings about how much we would lose um, as a result of Brexit. And it was very hard to say because nobody knew exactly what form Brexit would take during the referendum. I mean, you know, they, as, I, as I've said so many times, we did, there was no talk of leaving the single market until it became absolutely essential. I know. Dan Hannan was shocked. I know. I know. No. But Daniel Hannan saw it coming all along. <laughs> The, the greatest the greatest Janus figure of our era, but but you know it's it's there's there's a, there's a school of thought that says there are quite a lot of Britons who are a little bit isolated from the cost of living crisis because they might be older, wealthier, uh, they don't see perhaps all that the worst things that are happening, and in any case they can often buy their way out of the worst aspects of living in Britain today by going private in some form or another, and we know that people are increasingly doing that. But I think there's a more fundamental breakdown even for those people, which is that we are now living in a country where you can't trust the welfare state to look after you when you're ill or when you're in difficulty. And people sense that. And I think that leads to a feeling which you see when the, in the way people behave around property especially. You've got to hoard all you've got. Because the state's not going to help you out. You need to keep hold of everything you have because look what could happen. And, you know, the, the social care is an obvious example. What you might have to pay at the end of your mm. life, you must hand this down to your kids because no one else is going to help out your kids. It's that atavistic feeling that is taking over in Britain now and the feeling of complete loss of trust in the welfare state and its ability to do anything. And I think that is the big shift. And I think it is affecting everyone. Mm. Ian... These sort of economic arguments, they fail to convince people before the referendum, or they fail to convince enough people, I should mm. say, before the referendum. Um, continuing to press them implies precisely what you were talking about in the first part, that the country took only temporary leave of its senses, but now it has re-embraced rationalism. But does that stand up to scrutiny, or is that more hope than expectation? Yeah, I, no, okay. So I want you to be rational about this. Um, I don't think it's not like people have had this sort of epiphany on the road to sort of Damascus and suddenly been like, right, and I'm, I'm an empiricist now when it comes to you know how I appraise politics. I don't think it's that. I think the circumstances changed, and with the change in circumstances, your priorities change. So when it comes to it, if it's like, well, nothing works now, I'm broke now then you're very interested in someone who has a very concrete, practical solution to your problem. And you're probably less attracted to people telling very evocative primary colours fairy stories about you know, national destiny and then freedom and sovereignty and all of this other stuff. It's a time for more sober thinking. And I think that's what's happened to the public. So then the question then becomes for us, like, 
the debate is never going to be about you know d- d- rationality and then how you conduct it. It's, it's it's going to be framed through the prism of competence. And this is then where I think the star of first term becomes really fucking important. I feel almost like I'm jinxing it just by presuming it in that way. Yeah, but you know what I mean. But let's assume, <laughs> right? Let's assume that that takes place. It's not enough just to get in and to start parroting some stuff on Red Wall. You have to deliver. You have to deliver. Well, the thing is that I, I don't think you, with most of this stuff, you can't. Yeah. Like you know, you, you look at what happened like under Blair. In the second term, with the various units, with delivery unit, with the strategy unit, with the policy unit, it was a long five-year plan to get A&E waiting times, for instance, to where they were. And it was about bringing in the Treasury, yes. It was about bringing in the Department of Health. It was about making sure you had a system that was looking five years ahead in one unit, having a middle unit that was coordinating between the sort of departmental silos and the centre, and then having Barber's delivery unit that was like, what are the precise fucking metrics that we're going to use at each given moment so that we can deliver on these, on these commitments. Now, that takes, it does take a while, but it can be done in five. You know? Although there were some things they moved really quickly on. So there were some totemic, symbolic things, like, in their sort of, like, like national minimum wage, that was a really big thing yeah, they brought yeah, in yeah, really, really yeah. quickly. They made a p- pledge in terms of, you know, mm. NHS funding, you know, like, even some, like, Fox, like, there was a few sort of totemic things that they yeah. did quickly to get some early... We're taking a massive loan from Bernie Eccleston. No, no, no. To, to, give the feel, like, to give the feeling that of things change. are changing. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, I think you are totally right. I think actual delivery will take a long time. And also, there's not going to be much money, you know, even if there's a slight uptick in, in growth and inflation is, is on the way down. But I think it's going to be... I think with the, tr- the, the trick or the difficulty or the task for Labour is that famous quote that, you know, Roy Hattersley said of, Blair's opposition, which was like it's like carrying that precious Ming vase across the, mm. the highly polished floor. You know, how cautious do you be? But also, how do you give people some sort of hope as well? And I think the, the task for, for them is going to be the rationalism and the kind of competency. And, you know, I'm this really sensible person that has run organisations before and being honest with people, but, but, but also building all... up for so almost pitching your own, the, 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 the Starmer pitch Right now, it's not even for one term, it's for two terms. That is what the pitch is. Sure, but, but, be but really all of that is it. carrot, yeah. What about stick? I mean, has anyone actually suffered any consequences for all the lies told? The, the, the Telegraph is arguing that Brexit has gone terribly, but could have been splendid. The, the Institute of Economic Affairs, ditto on trasonomics. You know, the, the, there's a version out there in the wild somewhere that is beautiful. The, you know, resistance to the protocol is seen as a comeback lever for Johnson, who signed it. David Frost is a prominent voice against the deal that he negotiated. I mean, all the same grifters have done a quick costume change, basically. Will there be a reckoning? Should there be a reckoning? Or do we need to just let it go? Do we need to just say, you know what, just... L- leave it. Let it go. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, look, I think the tragedy is there should be a massive moment of reckoning. I mean, someone should go to prison for God's sake. Do you know what I mean? Like, that is how angry, like, I sort of feel about, you know, the absolute litany of lies that was just, you know, compl- I mean, didn't, I, I mean, if any of you can bear to watch this clip, which I think you've actually tweeted, it's, it's Michael Heseltine absolutely destroying Richard's ties. Yeah, let's have a round of applause for Heseltine because he was... Absolutely- 
absolutely amazing. You just like forensically sort of brought it down. But I, I think, sadly, we won't have that moment of reckoning because, not for a while, because part of that is, in my view, the Brexit thing went into this much deeper, more complicated discussion about, you know, people feeling leave, left behind, um, a bigger conversation about who speaks for them, who are the voices that speak for them. And that is all very, that's all very difficult and no one's really got a handle on how to deal with that. And those people that kind of did the grift of Brexit, that kind of, you know, hung on the take the, the, the coattails of those arguments... It's almost like they're still being rewarded exactly. for that. Exactly, well, they are. But it's because not, the, because, it's the, not like because they all are. the like the narrative around that just hasn't changed, and I don't know how because no one is really brave enough to take that stuff on. And I think that's the thing which is really, really. I mean, I but I'm, I mean, I sometimes have to sort of pinch myself. I mean, I have to go up against a lot of Brexiteers. That's what I like doing when I'm doing my debating and things. And I was next to, I sat on the thing and we were doing a sort of three-year anniversary. Somebody who was a Brexit MEP and is someone in the Reform Party. And I did my spiel on why I think Brexit's work, uh, not working in a disaster. And then I was expecting him to absolutely come at me and he sat by and he went, yeah, I think, I think she's right. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I had nothing to do with it. I mean, if I had like, you know, it was, and it's, it's always someone else's mm. fault. It is incredible but that is partly just finally on this that is partly a wider culture problem because we now live in a political class and a political culture where nobody ever takes responsibility for anything they have ever done it just it just feels it just feels like there is a need for a line to be drawn whether by saying amnesty or whether by having just a massive reckoning but to just leave it off to the side like a sort of alcoholic uncle that no one talks about enough about andrew bridgen he's a very like i know repression is the the potato thing was very unfair um, okay one final question and and this is to all of you because you may not agree with each other should people like us be arguing more strongly for rejoin rather than sort of resigning to boring realpolitik. And what I mean is, should we be creating the political space as, you know, advocates with no real power for people to maybe, in due course, step into that space with actual power? Or should we... Because at the moment, it feels like we're too scared to rock the boat. Thoughts? No. Feelings? No, we shouldn't. Um, can you just, just recognise for a moment what this moment is providing us with? Do you remember when the vaccines first came out and there was this sort of swell of like, Boris Johnson, he's a fucking genius. He's got the vaccines. And you would suddenly, you would suddenly get this sort of sense of, you saw it in the polls, of this wind in the sails. And you're like, well, obviously this is not true. And he would say, oh, this is only possible because of Brexit. And you're like, that's not fucking true. And, and yet it wouldn't matter, right? And it just got set in stone. And even now that his currency is completely devalued, people will still say, but he got the vaccines done, right? That was very, very irritating indeed. <laughs> now... <laughs> You see, when he needs to swear, he just doesn't. <laughs> it's just that I always need to swear. Um, now recognise what's happening now, because the wind is in our sails right now. 
And it is happening with the Brexit. You're exactly right when you say, look at the way that journalists are talking all of a sudden. Listen to the way they suddenly start talking on the fucking Today programme. Once upon a time on the Today programme, you even say that maybe this shit isn't going to work out. And John Humphreys came down on you like a ton of bricks. It's like, you don't understand the people of Great Britain. Like, fuck. It was almost like there was a fucking moratorium on saying this shit. Now, you will get 20 minutes filled with people talking about the economic damage specifically linked towards Brexit. Like, over and over, you get a sense, and it's small, and it's unsatisfying, and it's slow, but it is happening, of that becoming a social consensus. Now, we need that to form, and we need it to solidify, and then we follow a long-term plan to get in. But to get back in, we fight smart, we don't get impatient, and we don't take political actions just because it makes us feel better. Okay, does anyone disagree? Would anyone like to see it? That was tepid. I, it I, might be. <laughs> I shall. I shall endeavour to do better. Um, agreed, but but basically, rejoin needs a rebrand. Um, basic the, the Fanta Europe. <laughs> it needs it needs a profound rebrand where re- and we shouldn't be purist about it because let's face it, you know. Single market would be a hell of a lot better than we have now. Norway, you know, the whole Norway model would be an immense, immense improvement on, on the deal that we got. So let's not be purist about it. And let's not just see it in, you know, fully in or fully out. It's okay for it not at the moment, certainly, mm-hmm. and not in the next five years to, be, to, to have to go all, go all the way again. But it needs a rebrand because there are still many people who are attached to the Leave identity and who are crazy, though that is, um, <laughs> and, and who do not want to let go of the idea that Britain can do better in the world by doing something by itself that's different, that's independent. And we need to steadily and quietly come up with an idea which is as powerful in its essence as the idea of Brexit. Frankly, I don't believe Leave would have gone anywhere without the idea of Brexit. Leaving as a verb, you know, it's bo- it, it, it's worrying, it's boring. Mm-hmm. Brexit made it something that was a noun that was something that could be achieved, misleading though that was. Any suggestions? <laughs> I, I think this will come... I mean, you know, it, it could... We Brentry? Can, you know, if we can see it as some... You re-entry? Know, a, a, no, no, no. No, I don't think, I don't think re-anything. It has to be new. It has to be, you know, fantastic Nordic model or, you know, <laughs> sweet, you know some, some, something which some, uh, some, it seems an aspirational thing that Britain could do that does not, is not the same as being a member of the EU again and therefore does not carry that freighted weight of, oh, we failed, you know, we did it and we got it, we got it wrong and that's kind of embarrassing. It needs to be something which is more promising and more optimistic and contains within it the possibility of better times. And that is a tall order and I don't deny that it's a tall okay. order, but it doesn't, they really need a rebrand. Hmm. Last word to you, Aisha. It's maybe something to do with aliens. Like a sort of kind of alien theme sort of... Um, do I have to do talk not about aliens start again? her off. Do not start Don't her off. Don't make me talk about aliens again. So I agree with my uh, esteemed panel. I also think as well, part of this is if 
we all did sort of leap into a very aggressive sort of rejoin campaign and you know the Labour Party got well that would be an absolute gift to Sunak and you know in terms of their attack line so I just think Let's not do that. Um, but I think. Yeah, no, I'm not saying Labour should say. But I think anything but, in but that. But we're not Labour. No, but I think you know, there would be some people from Labour that couldn't resist the allure of this amazing campaign, and then it would be seen as a sort of Labour thing. But what I do think is is critical is. For a lot of people who voted leave, one of the things I thought was really moving was on the day of the third anniversary with all the phone-in programmes, the number of people from who voted leave who were ringing up with like kind of, you know, tears in their eyes, sort of like their voice cracking on the phone, just saying, I wish I could go back in time. Like I've completely made, not, not everything, but most people were like made such a big mistake. I listened to one guy on James O'Brien's show saying, I feel so bad for what I've done to my grandchildren. So I think people themselves are coming to that realisation. And I think what people don't want is to be told you were wrong. And actually loads of people were completely misled by all these charlatans. I think the way to do it is to keep pumping out the evidence in a way which is really clear, really understandable, and let the public, as they are doing, let the public come to that conclusion that it is a no-brainer for us to try and do something. And I would say instead of making a really highfalutin Fellini film kind of you know like romantic nostalgic thing make people come to that conclusion on really practical terms I did this um I do a lot of after dinner uh, speaking I went to this uh, load of stuff in the northwest manufacturers many of whom who voted Brexit many of them voted Boris Johnson and I went to do one and they were all they were very disappointed I wasn't Ian Botham to start off with that was like a huge we were all disappointed at that to be honest and I thought, oh God, I'm going to have quite a difficult time in this in this audience because they're definitely like not my crowd or whatever. And people were lining up and had a great chat afterwards. Pretty much everyone said, "What a mistake!" You know, this is harming my bit. And really, they each of them gave me like three tangible reasons why this was causing them sort of problems. And like their mindset is shifting because they don't feel people are finger wagging at them. They're coming to their own conclusions. So I think it's about sort of harnessing that. And when the public are like overwhelmingly this is a no-brainer. That is when we can, you know, assemble. Oh, but we... Yes, that's a, that's a lovely, practical and hopeful note to, to leave it on. Although I do love wagging my finger. So before we go, we've got a little bit of time for, for some audience questions. Uh, there, there are a couple of roving mic. mics mic. out there. Blimey. We have the mic. We have the mic. Okay. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes. yes, we have the mic. Yes, there's someone... By the way, the before front, I find somebody to give a question to... Another person we, there, and then yeah. we can move down the middle. We've got about 200 people on Zoom. Uh, and one oh, of them, right, they've one got of them, questions. One of them, Dave, has suggested a, a, a rebrand for uh, Brexit, which I think Ian might like. He says, call it Customs Union National Transition. <laughs> he thought that was the, the way to take it forward. Anyway, let's get a question. Very a hand. good. A hand, Very please. Good. Right. Gentlemen here... No, no, there's someone, there's someone well, here that... Uh, Right. The gentleman in the pink shirt that I, I sort of made time, a silent show. promise to <laughs> with on. my eyes. What's wrong with joining Euro? And don't ignore the subtext. <laughs> what, what's wrong with joining the Euro? Well, nothing at the moment. It'll be a bump up soon. <laughs> um, I, does anyone want to... I mean, I don't think we 
do any of us think there's something wrong with joining the EU? It's, I mean, there, there might be arguments. I mean, in the I far future. Sort of say, you, you know, if, if, if I'm not feeling confident enough to make the case for us joining the EU right now, <laughs> joining the Eurozone might be like a couple of steps after that one. So I would, I would probably hold my horses on that one at the moment. You know, I mean, I, I think it will become irrelevant anyway. I mean, what does it matter? You, you hold your phone up to a sensor somewhere and... <laughs> What do you care what the... Anyway. So we're going to have like a barter economy in about but, but two the months. Point, it's so. Bitcoin anyway. But, it's all Bitcoin. But the point is, save the pound was so powerful because there was a physical item with a queen's head on it. And, and, and now there's an app with King Charles on it. And it's like, I don't want that on my phone. <laughs> do, I, I you really love do. Him. You love him. Yeah. You love him. I, I'm, not, okay. I'm not sure Britons are ready yet to put their trust in the ECB. And, you know, boringly, basically, joining the uh, euro means uh, submitting to European Central Bank's decisions on interest rates. I think it's going to be a while before people are comfortable with that. Hmm. Okay. Um, okay, we're, we're going to uh, not be biased towards the front. We're going to do questions from further okay. towards the back. Gentleman here with his hand in the air. Right, Tom, here you go. Excuse me. Oh, there's two of them. There's going to be a fight. There's two of them very close. Oh, he passed I, he's, he's it so on. Nice. He's he so nice. passed it on. What a gem. He must get the next one. You must pass right. it back to him. Should the UK link its rejoin campaign explicitly to helping the Ukraine join? Anyone? Come on. Bloody hell. These people write opinions for a living, you know. We actually had a conversation behind stage. Are, you sure? Are we not allowed to say that? No, okay, we're not going to talk about that. We had a conversation about how many opinions we could sustain over the course of a week. And we were like, no, it's this number. It's been a lot on. I, do, I, think, it's a, I think it's a very inspired suggestion. I'm just... I'm slightly weary about it because I think each country has got... So, you know, everyone has to make their very individual case about why we're joining. Like, if you're the EU, there's such a great case for, for Ukraine to join. As I said, again, we are that nightmare X. Like, we are, you know, we are that nightmare X and we're like, should we go on a mini break? <laughs> should we go on a mini break, babe? It's like, they're like, leave us alone, <laughs> leave us alone. Stop sending me clumps of hair in the post. Like, leave me alone, leave me alone. So I just think it's a lovely idea. I think Ukraine, I think Zelensky would be like, fuck off. <laughs> Don't drag us down with you lot, basically. <laughs> when, like, you know, all the sort of, like, all the Brexiters turn up and pretend that it's their idea. So I just think it's a lovely idea, but I just, I couldn't see it working. We could make more of the Ukraine thing, though. Like, wh what is happening? Like, it's almost like it exists in this We could make more of the world. Ukraine thing. He said sensitively. He said sensitively. <laughs> <laughs> Accepted. But... But nevertheless, like, it's incredible the amount of sort of cognitive dissonance that you can see from people like Boris Johnson. The other day, Boris Johnson, they just asked him, he's like, should Ukraine join the EU? He's like, oh, yeah, definitely. You're like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, why does Ukraine want to join the EU? Right? Because it represents peace and cooperation against the overwhelming might of lunatic tyrants. Okay? That's what it represents. It came from the bowels of war, from the remnants of the Second World War, with the belief that through trade and cooperation, you can get more for yourself and for others than you can by just law of the jungle competition. And that, 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 the fact that that war is taking place 
without any real reference to the connection to what Europe is and what it represents to Ukraine, is probably a failing of our own, of not being more explicit and strident about the connections that exist. Okay. Um, Alex, uh, you said you made a very bold prediction this week on the podcast. Oh, did I? <laughs> you did. And I don't think it got enough airtime, actually. Um, it was that our ex-ex-prime minister might be the next leader of the Reform Party. Yeah, I, I, can, I can see a situation where, because he is just so mercurial and so destructive, that I can see a situation where if the pieces shift in a way that he thinks he won't be let into the Conservative Party to run it again, he might just go, go full rogue and just burn it all to the ground by hopping over to um, reform or whatever it's called uh, at, at the time. But would he, would he need reform? I mean, the thing is that I think Johnson would find reform quite vulgar. He likes money, he so likes, yeah, he would. Mm. He, likes, he would need Tice's cash. He, like, he likes money, but um, he also you know, doesn't like sort of jump it, I think there's something there's something about uh, about the reform party that might not quite gel what I think is poss- a possibility is that he like a sort of you know oversized parasite jumps on it destroys it squashes it squashes it eats it you know consumes it and then it's just Johnson, you know, Johnson. And, and then, like, reinvents the wigs yeah. Uh, yeah. or something. Yeah, and it, it loses. I mean, it, it changes its name all the bloody time, the Reform Party. Anyway, I can't... It, it's, a, it's a constant work about, in Boris Johnson pop back up to lead the Rejoin movement. That's what's going to happen, <laughs> oh, yeah. basically. Oh, yeah. That, 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 that I mean, is I would also not put it totally past possible. Just imagine if he was on our side. I mean, just imagine. Oh. I, I can't. I don't want to. Um, we'll, we'll take a couple more questions. Hi. So it seems to me that Europe is a Tory problem. and Europe is, sorry? Eh? It's a Conservative problem. Okay. And has been for a long time. It's a continent too, you know. <laughs> Just Certainly. saying. Absolutely. But in terms of our politics, it seems to be a Conservative issue. We know where Labour sit on this generally and what we would like. But the reality is it's the Tories that took us out. It was the Tories that took us in, really. And I think that the issue is that we're going to have to wait for the Tories to take us back in because unless we have that kind of all parties agreeing that this is the right thing to do, we're not going to get there. Oh, that's absolutely true. But, from, I mean, from the, the people I speak to at the Commission, they say that what they need is cross-party stable support, not just for rejoining, for like tiny little deals on veterinary agreements. Yeah they will not do something that they think the next time a party gets into power, they will undo it, because it's just so much disruption for them. So my my question really is, there's only 160,000 of them. We could take it over. (laughs) Should we? Is Is that less of a question and more of a statement? Well... You're the guys on the platform, not me. So, yeah, no, I, I think I'm not So sure. massive entry, Brentryism. Yeah. Is that what you're suggesting? I'm so? saying we take over the Tories and then we take us back in. 
I think there is actually a version of the of the Tory party that could be reconciled to rejoining certainly the single market and the customs union on the basis of its economic benefits. The problem comes when you're talking about all the other things the EU does. Um, Peace, peace, you know all, all the all the other functions which it's taken on since it was it became the European Community and was the yeah, out of the coal and steel community, um, and so that's why I would aim, you know, as I say, I'd said before, not be a purist, but aim for the economic case before you know you talk you talk about the rest of it. I just love the way that it sounded at the start, like you were making this like really sage sort of consensual national point and then you're like so let's just take the fuckers over yeah yeah went went rapidly down the wall street um so can we take one last question or can i have we, a question at least two from a more woman? questions all remaining questions will be from women Woo! the lads have had a go and i hope you're pleased with yourselves yes all remaining questions at least two will be from women okay here's a woman <laughs> we have no, she hasn't got a hand up. Hang on. A... You could self-define if you're really okay. desperate. Don't cheat. <laughs> yeah, all right, all right. I'm, I'm going to be really quick because it's not a question, it's a suggestion. Uh-huh. You have to listen very carefully. We rebrand, rejoin as Sovereign. And I'll pass it to somebody who's got a question. I quite like that. I think there's legs to that. Next one. Do you think that uh, Sturgeon after Arden is a really depressing thing about women, particularly in politics, Maybe. being taken down and Maybe. not being able to cope with the level of hate? Or do you think that? Or do you think they will meet somewhere like what was the island that Wonder Woman is from? Yeah. And they're from actually, they're, they're actually. Yeah, so is there, is there a thing like that going on, that they're actually plotting the takeover of the world from a, a sort of benign matriarchy? I, I don't, I, I don't, find, I don't find it depressing at all, actually. I find it refreshing. And, I, you know, I found it great to hear Sturgeon today making an articulate explanation of why she was going. And she's been eight years in power. And that's a, that's a good thing. And, you know, they are not the first reasonable people to quit politics early because of the insanity that we are currently living through. You know, there are some Tories who also left the party for because they, they couldn't deal any longer with the polarisation and the, the uh, situation it was in. But the way that they've managed to articulate it um, I think is, is actually a bit of an inspiration and is a good thing. On the other hand, you know, we have Liz Truss. I, Aisha, I see, is holding her microphone like Kiki D. <laughs> when you were... Yeah. I, I take a slightly different view. I, I, was quite, I was quite depressed by it, and I was really depressed by Jacinda uh, Ardern as well. And I think there is a refreshing honesty to it, but I find that quite painful, particularly because I have worked in politics for 20 years, and it is tougher on women than it is on men. Women are held to a... Uh, a, a higher kind of degree of scrutiny and the abuse is worse against women and I think the thing that just made me feel quite sad about the Nicola Sturgeon thing and I don't think she's got everything right in how she's handled everything but she didn't drag her party into disrepute she, she wasn't like kind of lying all the time she wasn't kind of embezzling the, the country or doing kind of terrible things and I sort of feel like she did get targeted a lot because she was a, a woman and actually some of what brought her down was Alex Salmon in terms of the the row um, and that they had and um, I hate to say it 
a, a really awful person who ended up going into women's prison helped bring her down. And to me, that felt quite a depressing way to end this really quite brilliant career. And, and even though I've got different politics to Nicola Sturgeon and... Um, I just really admired her. For me, I hadn't seen a woman in this country, on these islands, who was confident, assured as a progressive woman. You know, I'd seen sort of right-wing women do well, the, the grew up in the sort of shadow of Margaret Thatcher, etc. And it was really refreshing. And particularly coming from a Labour heritage where, you know, we don't really let women become leaders of them. Yeah, it's not we for need, us. We need it's not to for sort that But, out. you know, I, I played... When I was preparing Ed Miliband for those televised leader debates, I had to play Nicola Sturgeon because that's... <laughs> and I'll tell you something, ladies, if you want to give yourself a confidence boost, role-play Nicola Sturgeon. It is like... <laughs> It was so funny when we were doing the like role play and I was getting into like being Nicola Sturgeon, I'd be to Ed, shut the fuck up, no Ed! Kind of thing. He'd be like, oh. And this is a lovely note to leave it on. Um, Nicola, if you're listening, you are big. It's the politics that got small. That's all we've got time for. A huge thank you to the ever-expanding Podmasters team that make it all happen behind the scenes. Alex, Andrew, Gina, Jacob, Jay, Jet, Jim, Kasha... Martin and Robin, and a big warm round for our friends not on this stage tonight. I hear Arthur, Dorian, Hannah, Marie, Miata, Naomi, Seth, Tom, and Yasmin. And thanks as ever to the Leicester Square Theatre for having us. And finally, thank you to Aisha. To Ian. And to Ross. And to you, to you, both here and on the stream. Thank you for being wonderful. Thank you. Good night. Oh, God, what now? Live at the Leicester Square Theatre was presented by Alex Andreu with Ian Dunt, Aisha Hazarika and Ros Taylor. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis with additional production from Kasia Tomashevich and Jack Gerbertson, and with audio production and moving pictures by me, Alex Reese. Our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Art direction by Mark Taylor and James Parrott. Original music by Jade Bailey. Oh God, what now? is a Podmasters production. 